are proudly presented by the Cornballer, a Bluth Company favorite since the 1970s. Go ahead, touch the Cornballer, available only in Mexico. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant Banjax and now Suicide Jockeys. The other voice of the dark, the man of the box to the left is... David Avalone, uh... Comic book writer, film guy, and owner of uh, some some classic 1970s glassware. Oh, love it. Um, I'm jealous now. I'm going to have to get some classic glassware in a second. Uh, if you missed any of our previous conversations, uh, episode featuring uh, episodes, excuse me, featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, John Lehman, and many, many more. Our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, uh, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and check it out. Um, great show, great conversation today, but let's get some plugs in before we uh, we do it, huh? Uh, my plug is coming up in a week or two. You'll see Elvira meets Vincent Price numero tres uh, at your local uh, comic book shop, Emporium, and also online. Um, as I have often said, it's Elvira meets Vincent Price. The title should sell you on it. Uh, if the title doesn't sell you on it, you're not interested, and that's fine. Um, I dig that. I should that. also. I also would like to plug Cassandra's book. Uh, 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 the boss, Elvira, wrote a great memoir autobiography called uh, "Yours Cruelly, Elvira," and the thing is amazing. She's had an amazing life. Long before she became Elvira, she was a showgirl in Vegas at 17, you know, had a sort of date with Elvis Presley. The thing is, the thing is nuts. And I, I absolutely recommend it hundred percent. Ryland. She has, lived, she has lived quite the life. Um, my, uh, my newest, my latest and greatest suicide jockeys is available in comic shops right now. Uh, issue two hit, uh, comic shops last week. Um, it is uh, tokusatsu. Uh, tokusatsu, for the uninitiated, is the Japanese sci-fi action genre that includes things like Power Rangers and Super Sentai, but also kaiju fare like Godzilla. Um, in a nutshell, Suicide Jockeys is Fast and the Furious meets Voltron. Um, it is howling at the moon good fun, um, but, you know, extra dollop of uh, heart and soul and a uh, little uh, Zen philosophy thrown in uh, for the thinking men and women. So go check that out. Um, I am going to go with my uh, my rock and wrestling glassware nice. today. Um, nice. You know, circa the mid '80s. You got uh, you got Hulk and JYD and Andre nice. on one side, and then you got Rowdy Piper and Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. So um, you've inspired. I, me. I am drink. Uh, I am drinking out of my Margot Kidder Lois Lane glass uh, from uh, I guess '78, '79. But today joining us is. Henry Barajas, let me bring Henry in. Henry, welcome. Hey. Tell tell the kids at home a little bit about yourself, Henry. Hi, my name is Henry Barajas. I am the author of the upcoming uh, graphic Latinx fantasy graphic novel, Helm Greycastle, October 13th. Or if you like to shop at bookstores, October 19th. Um <laughs> I co-created that with uh, Brian Valenza. The art is done by Ramat Hondoko, lettered by Gabrielle Downey, who did a cover for us. We had various covers by the likes of David Lapham, Becky Cloonan, Stepan Sajik, 
so many amazing people. Very excited for it to finally come out. Um, if you haven't already, please pre-order it at your local comic shop. Or um, I would say check my Linktree link on my Twitter and Instagram. But Instagram's down today, so <laughs> I don't know what I've been able. I don't know what I've done with myself for the last, you know, <laughs> ten hours. Now but, that that project came out as floppies originally, yes, and this yeah, is it came project. out as floppies um, from Top Cow Productions and Image Comics. That started April. Um, we're every issue came with a five E um, compatible RPG that uh, readers can play along and be and get themselves immersed in the world that is at Azteca where the book takes place the simple pitch is what if mordor had a south side <laughs> nice yes boil heights of mordor yes. yes yes it's basically yeah the what if the aztec beat the spanish conquistadors and were able to thrive a little longer and these uh you know these adventurers find themselves in a in a situation where they can either save the drag the the last dragon prince and run, or help the people of his, of Azteca um, take their land back. So nice. it's a good time. But I read um, I read the floppies and really love them. It's a thank it's a, you. It's a fun it's a fun ride. It's a it's a it's a nice you know high fantasy tends to uh, for me it kind of blurs into one thing. You know, I always say I, I didn't watch Game of Thrones because it hit HBO at exactly the moment Peter Jackson convinced me I never wanted to see anything like that ever again. I was done. Uh, but your book didn't have that effect on me. I really, I re it was really a delightful romp. For Thank you. Word. It was definitely a love letter to Tolkien. Mm -hmm. um, some, you know, I'm someone who grew up going to the theaters to watch the movies and playing the video games and not really thinking about how white it all is. And <laughs> yeah. while I was um, researching La Voz de Mayo, Tata Rambo, my first big graphic novel that was originally right. kickstarted, published by Top Cow Productions and Image Comics, I was researching that the tribe that my mother um, is a part of, or her family at least, uh, they are Pascuayaki, and they were um, documented by Spanish conquistadors. So... I didn't re realize how far back my own history goes and right. living an hour from the border of Mexico and being Mexican American and having indigenous ties really um, showed me that a lot of that history is kept from me or not empowered in any way. So um, I decided to try to research more Mesoamerican history and use that uh, to make a, a fantasy story, which it really lend well because the Aztecs believed in, in magic. They had sorcerers. They had, um, you know, they really kind of wrote the book on astrology by using reflection ponds and, um, you know, creating the calendar or at least keeping the Mayan calendar alive and you, and really having an, a fundamental understanding of the, of the meaning of zero. There were, and, mm -hmm. and just right. like so much that we really just know Aztec history, which is not even the most prop the proper way. I learned even that, that like the Aztecs were just one tribe of, or one group of people of many groups of people. Um, but we kind of just lump it all together to one thing. Right. Um, but yeah, learning a, a past what Mel Gibson has kind of owned. 
through uh, Apocalypto, which yeah. is the most easiest way for me to pitch, pitch this series is what if Apocalypto met Lord of the Rings? That's great. Did you ever, there was a great comic in the, in the 80s, which was actually one of my introductions to Aztec history and culture, which was called Aztec Ace by Doug Mensch. Uh, it was published by Eclipse. Uh, and it was, it was a time travel sci-fi thing. And if you've never, it kind of vanished off the face of the earth after uh, at when Eclipse went down. But if you can track mm -hmm. it down in the long boxes, they actually, I think Dark Horse is releasing an omnibus at some point in 2022. On, on um, Amazon right now. That's cool. Yeah, no, I've never yeah. heard of it. It's really a fun, interesting series. It's like it's time travel, so it doesn't spend that much time specifically in Tenochtitlan, if I'm pronouncing that even remotely correctly. That is not an easy word for me. Um, it's not. But it's, no. It's uh, yeah. Nahuatl does not roll off uh, the gringo tongue quite so, quite so was, easily. Yeah. But I mean, I, I grew up. Yeah, like not knowing Spanish and never knowing that actually my people spoke Nahuatl, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was, a big, I did a, it was very empowering for me. I'm sure. It's a, I did a Zorro book a couple of years ago and that I used that as an excuse to read about the San Gabrielino and the, what's the local tribe in Los Angeles just went out of my head, the Tongva. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was really fascinating stuff. And to bring that into a Zorro story. That's cool. You know, to use a Corandera and to use a Bruja and a, you know, a Jaguar shape-shifting priest and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's such a rich and weirdly untapped, you know, the film industry sits right above the borders of the former Aztec Empire and has no interest in this rich, it's full of monsters and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wild tapestry to work with, so... Yeah, but I want I wanted to get back to uh, where I wanted to, to to start this conversation. There's a cliche about Los Angeles, and it's usually a negative one. And the cliche is: you go to a restaurant, and every waiter has a screenplay. And people <laughs> always present that as like, "Ugh, every waiter has a screenplay." Instead of, "Isn't it amazing that your waiter could be like a talented, interesting guy?" Like people never look at it the other way of like, instead of just being a guy slinging hash, your waiter goes home and writes cool shit. How awesome yeah. is that? And yeah. Henry knows where this is going because we met at a donut shop. Henry was working at Kettle Glazed, which is best donut shop in Los Angeles on Franklin in Hollywood. And I think comic books came up because I was with my wife and we were grabbing donuts for the car to either drive down to Long Beach Comic Con or WonderCon, and you asked, like, where are you going? And I <laughs> told you, and you were like, oh, I'm a comic book writer, actually. And uh, then I think the next time I was at one of those cons, you were behind a booth. Yeah. And it was selling, I bought uh, Tata Rambo from you. Yeah. Were there, were, were, were there donuts at the booth? I used they to bring donuts to cons, but... <laughs> I, I think yeah, they not, were out by the time I got there. Yeah, I bring them early, and I usually okay. pass them to friends that are visiting from out of town, uh, like uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor will probably sure. get you know a couple. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right because, like, I, when I first moved to LA, 
uh, I would be at like a social gathering and everyone would be like, oh, what do you do? And I would say, I write comic books and everyone would be so intrigued. And then someone would say, I'm an actor. And then like you could feel the air get sucked out of the room. <laughs> and everyone would go, oh. Like yeah. no one cared. And it was really right. sad because like I'm from Arizona. You know, we have we don't have a lot of actors. So it's always interesting to talk to people like that. But yeah, you're right. Uh, I did manage Kettle Glaze for a couple of years. And uh, it was an interesting place because David and his lovely wife would come in. And um, a lot of comic book people uh, used to come by. Mark Andreco. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Phil Lamar would always oh, be sure. there. That makes uh, sense. Yeah. Friend of the show. Friend Friend, Phil's show. been on the show. I, I keep forgetting me at Mark to come on the show. Yeah, I love Mark. Him. Mark would always come in. Um the Russo brothers and their, their family would oh, always really? be in the shop. Yeah. Funny. Um, very nice people. Um, uh, what's her name? Who was Jessica Jones? Um, Kristen Ritter. Yeah. Kristen yeah. Ritter was in all the time. Mm-hmm. It was a, an amazing place. Like John Ham used to come in and I used to fantasize that we were best friends and, <laughs> and that he just like, we were hanging out, you know, really cool guy. But um, my, my wife worked with him on a show called The Division, which is before anything really was happening for him. And he was basically it was a show about lady cops. And he was, you know, the eye candy on the uh, show about the lady cops. He was the he was the side of beef that they had around so that the ladies could look at him and 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 be very, very happy about what a sexy boy he was. Very nice uh, guy. But, yeah, very, 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 very nice guy. We've run into a, him a few times uh, since then. My wife told I, a colleague of my wife's ended up working on uh, Mad Men, and they had us. And my wife was a burlesque dancer for years and years and years, and they had a burlesque dancer in a scene, and the uh, the costumer that my wife had worked with was like, "I know a burlesque dancer," and John Hamm was like. I know a burlesque dancer. I wonder if it's the same one. And it was. It was. Uh, oh wow! It was my wife. It's a very, very, very small world. But uh, I just wanted to connect that dot of like you were. What were you working on while you were uh, working at Kettle Glaze? Which uh, which projects were you writing while you were there? Well, I was working three jobs. Well, four if you count the comic. Mm. Uh, I was working Kettle Glazed. I was working at Top Cow Productions. And I was working for Sci-Fi Wire on the weekends. Um, And then I was writing La Voz de Mayo and crowdfunding it. So, yeah, I was for the for those two years, I was uh, I was very busy. It was very difficult. What uh, were you doing at Top Cow? I was the director of operations there. And I was basically doing PR, social media, retailer, library outreach, um, customer relations, managing their store, going to cons all around the country, setting up a lot of events for uh, Matt Hawkins and uh, Kickstarter fulfillment. So, yeah, it was a real busy time. And I, I liked the, the donut shop a lot because it was just easy for me to sure. just be there, give you your coffee and donuts and you would leave. Sure. You know, I think I think people No, Go ahead, Ryan. Uh, I, I was just going to say that I love that we all have our version of the donut shop. Um, my version of the donut shop, I uh, my first job uh, in Los Angeles, I guess, um, 
I was I was attending you know the American Film Institute Conservatory during the day, but my at night I did English subtitles. I I created and edited English subtitles for DVD releases. Um, and so to this day, you can still put on a Seinfeld DVD or a MacGyver DVD or a Night Court DVD, and you see my subtitles on there. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> and, and and so th- that was a really funny way to like spend time. I don't know, you know, I, I mean, to, to, to make money, it was like, you know, it, like any of these jobs in L.A., like you go there and it is a ton of people who want to get into the entertainment industry one way or another. You know, this guy wants to be an editor and this guy wants to be a writer. There were a lot of writers there um, because they are specifically hiring people with very good, you know, English composition skills to do these these subtitles. A lot of the editors, because you're physically editing these subtitles, you know, to, to picture and everything like that. Um, but that was fun. That, that was this interesting job because it was like, um, you had to do one episode per workday. Right. Um, but we could come in and we could get like 80% of our work done in like the first hour or two. And then wow. like, <laughs> so, so we, we'd all come in at the same time. We would just plow through it. And then it was like, go grab a case of beer and go to the parking garage and throw a football around for a couple hours. <laughs> And then, and then at some point, sort of make your way back to the uh, the, the the computer, um, and you know, over the course of the you know the final eighty percent of the day, uh, you were doing twenty percent of your work while playing online poker or finishing a script, or um, yeah. uh, and then <laughs> and then what happened? There was this tipping point while I'm working this job where I realized I was making a lot more money playing online poker during the workday than I was, um, <laughs> you know, than I was actually wow. doing the subtitling. And so I left the subtitling job to play poker full time. Uh, uh, and then eventually got, you know, hired for my first, uh, uh writing gig and, you know, haven't, uh, haven't had to do anything else for about 15 years, but you um, gambled and you won. I gambled and I won, and so yeah. So I had a, a short career as a subtitler, and then a short career as a uh, as a a, a poker writer, and, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I spent about the last fifteen years writing. So um, it is it is funny when you've had any kind of gig with uh, responsibilities or that taps into your your deepest skills. You know, writing, directing. You know, things that are are near and dear to you and take a lot out of you. Uh, I used to occasionally do extra work and I've done it off and on. I haven't done it in a while now, but even when I was directing and producing movies, every once in a while I'd, I had a SAG card for years and I would, you know, go do a couple of days on a movie and I always called it my humility reset. Like, you know, remember let's, let's be treated like the lowest person on the totem pole for a day and see if you can still handle that. But the funniest thing about it is once you've had any real responsibility on a movie set, when you go back and you're just an extra, it's it's literally it's like going back to high school as a 40 year old. There are no stakes. There's no yeah. there's nothing how do you do, fellow about. kids? Yeah. You know, yeah. there's but there's nothing to be like upset about or tense about. And and the the lesson was there never was. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like it was it was always. I remember I had a job as a receptionist when I was temping at some production company and they were like, at the end of the first day, they were like, wow, you're better at this than anyone we've had. You're so good at it. What's your secret? And I said, oh, you don't, you don't want to know my secret. And they were like, no, tell us. I was like, I don't give a shit. I, if I, hang up <laughs> I don't on, give a fuck. <laughs> it's like, if I hang up on the president of your company, I, I don't care. <laughs> like there's nothing you can do to me. You can't, you, the worst thing you can do to me is take, 
this dumb job away from me and I don't like so what nothing that happens to me during the day here is going to have any bearing on any part of my life so I'm relaxed so I don't fuck up as much as some of the other people because they're right you've made them tense you've convinced them that this is a really high pressure difficult job when it's just pushing a couple of buttons and saying yeah I got a guy on okay all right you know so it's like I, 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 I remember working for uh, when I was I was out here when I was 19 and I was working for Oliver Stone while he was um, he was prepping any given Sunday. And that was an amazing job, but I'm getting paid dog shit. Right. And so I'm working for Oliver like five days a week. And so I have to get this this part time job and I'm uh, I'm tearing tickets and cleaning theaters at the Avco General Cinema in Westwood Village. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> great summer to be doing it because they had like Armageddon there, which is still one of my favorite movies. They had Out of Sight, which is like still a top five movie for me. Just a great, like, you know, summer movie, uh, uh, you know, sort of thing. And you never knew who was going to walk in. Like, uh, we had we had Armageddon in Westwood, and so Michael Bay was in, like, every day, and I'm talking with Michael Bay. <laughs> just, just, just weird, crazy fucking stories. But it was one of those jobs where it was like, I did not give a fucking shit, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so I'm sitting there behind the, you know, I'm sitting there behind the ticket booth eating fucking popcorn, and, and, and one of the coworkers was like, dude, you can't do that. You're going to get fired. I'm like... Yeah, yeah, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. I'm about to go get a. I'm about to go get a candy bar. I remember the manager pulling me aside and like you were supposed to have black shoes, but I I, I bought black shoes that had a little bit of white on there, and they're like, yeah, you can't, uh, you know, you, you can't have those shoes. You need to go and get shoes that are all black. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that. It's like, no, you don't understand. We're going to fire you unless you get these black shoes. So I'm like, yeah, um, yeah, not not yeah, happening. You know, then that's what's gonna happen. Yes, you know. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny, you know, I was a, I was a grip for four years, uh, a little longer than that actually. And, uh, someone recently posted a picture of the power Rangers control center, you know, where they talked to Zordon. Yeah. And the Zordon wall, as we called it was in the background. And I wrote, I commented on the guy's picture. I guarantee you, me or one of three other guys is dead asleep behind that wall. <laughs> when, when this picture was taken, me or three other guys I know, uh, one wow. of us is out cold back there because that's what we were doing. So, so, uh, so this is great. This is great radio. I apologize for our, our our listeners, but I am holding up my name tag from the Avco General Cinema right now, and you can see it says Bruce Leroy on it. Um, the the protagonist of the Last Dragon, the Barry Gordy film, wow. and so I would um, so so I was supposed to wear a name tag with my name on it, and I would um, I would just every day I'd put John McClane in, I would put you know whatever, um, and again they'd be like, well yeah you can't do that, like I'd be like, oh, this is what I'm doing, <laughs> and so 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 my my last my last day or my last week I, I was wearing Bruce Lee right, my dog has gotten a hold of it, so there's it's a little oh, chewed wow. up. But um, I kept yeah. it as a uh, as a souvenir. I have my cool. I have my first Comic Con badge from '89, and for whatever reason, I had an attitude about having name tags with my real name on them. So the name on the name tag is uh, Carl Denham, the director from the movie King Kong. Oh wow! Just like that name, but to to get it to get us back on the on the on the Henry track, uh, <laughs> what what was your first? How long did you want to do comic books, and what was your first project? 
Um, I was a weird kid because I, my parents, you're still, you're still a weird kid. Henry. I'm still weird. Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't, but I'm like as a, a like youth, now, like someone in elementary school, uh, I got, my parents used to be really big into, uh, the antique show, like the road show on PBS. Sure, so nice. they, they would see comics sell for thousands of dollars and they would buy boxes of comics thing and then give them to me to use the wizard magazines to see what was worth what. Right. And I, I'm from a college town and a lot of kids would leave home and leave all their comics and parents and grandparents wouldn't know what to do with them. So I would get catalogs, like huge boxes of wizard magazines and read about the comic book industry and read about comics that I thought I'd never get to own. So I didn't, you know, I had, a, I was lucky that I knew comics was a job because every year or every month there was the top 10 writers and artists. And I wanted to be one of the top 10. And uh, so I would draw Power Ranger comics when I was a kid. <laughs> while I was, while, while I was you were asleep, sleeping, I would draw little David behind Gordon. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I would just draw like really obscure Power Ranger comics. And I, my first comic that i remember just like staring at is um world's finest number three where the joker and lex luther are shaking hands and it's uh written by uh david lloyd and art by steve rude and wow. uh and then when you flip it it was the same picture but their goons were on each side and they were pointing their guns at each other and i i just loved because you never saw villains on covers you know, or without Batman and Superman. So it was a, um, it was like, for me, it was my favorite thing to read all the time because it, it really just boiled down those two characters in the way that I saw it in the movies. And my parents were, are, you know, children's of the seventies. They, they loved um, um, super friends. So they turned that on to me when I was a kid. So I was just a huge comic book, book fan, but uh, my first project that I ever got to publish was, a book called El Loco, and it was around the same time that Jan Governor Jan Brewer signed a law um, that would allow law enforcement to um, get uh, or question people's citizenship. And it was a uh, law that was directed at the uh, community, you know, at, at the brown community. So I created a character named El Loco who fought. Uh, the chupacabra and racial profiling and, and because it came out around the same time it was all over the news in tucson and arizona in general and um i just kept making small stuff and printing them at kinko's and and then uh, i eventually realized that i didn't live a, enough life at 19 years old so i just kept writing about comics and i got to be you know working for the arizona daily star without a journalism degree Got to be a reporter there. Got to be an online editor, working with Keith Knight, and um, working with various cartoonists, Lalo Acades, and so many people, and being able to keep comics in my life for a long time. But it wasn't until I wrote a story for Where We Live for the Image Comics anthology that benefited the mass shooting survivors that mm -hmm. um, Wendy Williams and J.H. Uh, Williams III had uh, curated. And that kind of helped me gain a little bit more traction as time went on and, and giving me the and just, you know, curating a, an audience from journalism and just com stand up mm -hmm. comedy and 
being a radio DJ and helping put on the first Tucson Jazz Festival. Um, it was, you know, just a, a, like a whole snowballing of just trying to sure. get to this point in comics. You're, you're, you're the hardest working man in show business, Henry. That's a lot of, uh, well, I mean, that's a lot of self-generating, self-starting stuff. And a lot of people do not have the, you know, do not have what it takes to do that because it does take a certain amount of like, no one's helping me with this. I'm going to do it myself, you know? Uh, and that's, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always impressed with that. How did, uh, how did the, the Tata Rambo uh, project come about? That was kickstarted, right? Yeah. Um, I lost my job at the Tucson weekly the um, the paper was purchased by a, a company in Texas that was driven by advertorial work, so they had a department, and they didn't need two of the same department. So a lot of people from the Tucson Weekly was let go, and I became very bitter and angry. And I told the publisher he was a coward and he was running the paper into the ground, so he fired me. And um, so I started, you know, I, I went all in on comedy. I went all in on radio. I had my own radio show and uh, I was working at bars and I kind of was just drinking a lot and just really like, I, I cashed out my 401k that I had from Citibank. I started working for City Mortgage in 2008 for four years and I cashed out my 401k to do like, just basically do nothing. And for a year I didn't write a single word and I was uh, just kind of like at the lowest point of my life. And I realized that I was, I actually, I was freelancing. I wasn't writing for me or writing stuff that I wanted to put out there. So I was freelancing for like papers and, and magazines and stuff. And I decided to write about my great grandfather because he was in, out, in and out of the hospital a lot. And I realized that his generation of people were dying quickly and I wanted to get a lot of them on the record before it was too late. So, mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I spent a whole month, uh, at least two, two to three times a week, picking him up, taking him places, driving him around and taking him to his last March and, um, just writing kind of, and then researching for about three years of, uh, looking, looking like at libraries and film records at the, uh, Pima community, Pima County libraries and going to the, the Pascua Yaquis libraries and talking to Congressman Raul Grijalva, who was followed the footsteps of Congressman Mo Udall, who helped, the Pascua Yaqui tribe gained federal recognition under the Carter administration. And um, yeah, so work basically being at the lowest point of my life and trying to figure out what I wanted to do and using my journalism and my love for comics and kind of marrying the two. Was, that was 2015. And uh, so you wrote a script and found an artist and then put it on. Yeah, I was working with starter, a Like what was the process there? Yeah, so I, I wrote a script and I was gonna, I was going to work with a guy named Frank and um, I was working at Top Cow at the time or 2016 is when I really started to get serious about it and like, all right, now I need to get this thing done. Now that I'm done asking questions because the more answers I get, the more questions kept popping up. So my boss, Matt Hawkins, said, I will help you publish this if you get Jay Gonzo to draw it. And Jay Gonzo uh, created a comic called La Mano del Destino, really amazing cartoonist. And I was kind of like embarrassed that I didn't think of that first. And so I had to like let Frank go, which was sad. 
Um, but it ended up working out and he was super cool about it because he had reservations about being a white guy drawing this comic anyway. And um, so Gonzo and I teamed up. We kickstarted the first issue. It was important for me to crowdfund, pay, pay him money while we were doing this because, uh, you know, I guess this is how the sausage is made in comics. But when you're doing creator own stuff, as you know, David, you, it's really hard to fund it up front. So you got to find a way to get, get funding. And, and to me, it was important for me to own this book. So uh, I wanted to kickstart it and show that there was an audience and an appetite for something like this. So we kickstarted three, we had three kickstarters. Um, I sent, I sent out the books on my own as uh, self-published in the United States and then took what we had and, we solicited through um, Top Cow and Image Comics. But yeah, without Gonzo, he really just like took it to another level. Sure. You can get it on, yeah, you can look at it on Hoopla, Overdrive, it's on Apple Books, it's on every available kick, you know, reader. So you did, it was three issues and you did a Kickstarter for each issue? Was yeah. that the, and what was, if I can ask, what was the, what was the ask and what was the raise? The ask, um, what do you mean? Well, we the the initial goal of the Kickstarter was what? Grand, uh, the initial grand, goal, five grand. yeah, it was like five thousand. We always ended up over, mm -hmm. thankfully. Um, I didn't give myself a page rate because I didn't want to ask that much more. Sure, and um, because it was all going through me, I basically just got like I felt like the coin star collector, like. You, everyone dumped the money and then like i just it all came to my pockets so like it was easier for me to figure out what was like the net right not have to worry about it and especially since i'm paying taxes i'm doing all the shipping i'm doing everything it was easier for me to just say all right i'm gonna take whatever's left um so the ask was always like five thousand then we went to eight thousand and then because it was the third issue as you know uh sales just kind of decline after one and two um and it was my personal network so i felt like we're just gonna get what we need for the third issue and we went back to five and we still did like seven or i think seven or eight but it was always like seven eight thousand uh helm gray castle i kick-started number one and we ended up raising fifteen thousand uh for that and i think because it was just it lent more to like you know fantasy fans and, and sure. it's, a, it's an easier there are, ask. there are yeah there are things that are there are things that are just easier to sell to an audience yeah uh, and there's no you know I've, I've talked about this before but when i was doing the last drawing blood kickstarter uh you know ben bishop <laughs> sent me the link to brian polito and he's like this guy's making i was like we're not doing that though and we're not <laughs> interested in doing that like if we wanted to do it book with about big tits we would we need big boobs <laughs> like we could, we could like you're talking to the author of elvira here i know how to <laughs> sell a book if that's what we're selling but that's not the story that we wanted to tell here oh yeah so, no, we're not going to make a million dollars off of our midlife crisis of an artist book it's just not yeah. you know you so, gotta have so yeah you know yeah so yeah he's a good know, friend Lat and... latinx you know yeah military history is a very is not the same thing <laughs> as high fantasy it's just not and yeah. you know that's okay yeah that's brian Polito's a good friend and, and he really like i mean you know he's really done a great job at like 
targeting yeah. his audience. And Absolutely. Like I said, no, like, like I said, I write Elvira. I am not yeah. the. I, I am not in a glass house throwing a stone here. Right. You know. I know. No, why. No, there's, there's, yeah. There's no criticism here. I mean, that guy's yeah. literally the best at, at what he does, and there is a there is a um, a, a voracious appetite for for the the book. Necrophilia. And, yeah. and it's uh, it's you know, and 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 you know, and there are a lot of people. Um, you know, again, uh, uh, you know, Dan Mendoza is a friend, and and Dan Dan is very much uh, yeah. you know, following there in the footsteps of, of guys like Brian. It's only two people. There's a rich necrophilia. I mean, it, it is amazing though how how. I mean, I have um, I mean, I, I I am sort of in the middle of you know crowdfunding two different series and there's you know there's the jump which is a you know it, it it's sci-fi stuff i mean it's um it is a thriller that takes place in the world of astral projection and so it's it is to a certain degree kickstarter catnip and then i have the peacekeepers which is a you know it is a fargo-esque crime drama you know it is more of a thinking man's book and and the ease at which i sell this versus the 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 yeah. sisyphusian effort of of trying to get people to uh to um, you know, to uh, get excited on Kickstarter about a thinking man's uh, uh, crime uh, uh, drama, you know, procedural, um, is very interesting. I mean, it's um, uh, you know, it, 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 Kickstarter is such a weird monster because it's like, to a certain degree, it's like there is this opportunity to, um, you know, it is a place to sell your book, your dream project. Let's take it on there. Let's get it sold. And the beauty, like, no, no matter what, what niche you're trying to cater to, you're going to find it on there. There are people looking for your book on Kickstarter. I guarantee it. However, all of that said, <laughs> Kickstarter becomes a lot easier if you kind of cater to where, you know, people are going. And, um, and there are certain things, um, you know, uh, um, I mean, uh, you know, booby comics uh, are, are obviously a, a, a big draw. It's, it's, um, a part, it's, it's a part of any, you know, if you're making popular art, you know, this makes me think about there was a, a producer that was uh, financing Sam Fuller's movies in the 50s. And Fuller wanted to make a movie about a Japanese police detective and there's a white girl that falls in love with him. It's two police detectives, white, white guy and a Japanese guy, and the girl falls in love with the Japanese guy. And the producer went, okay, and he totally literally turned to a map. And he's like, okay, so we're not selling it in Alabama. We're not selling it in Mississippi. We're and he looks at the map and he goes, I can give you $350,000 to shoot that movie. You know, and in $1950, that's, you know, that's not bad money. But it's that thing of like, he didn't say, I can't let you make the interracial cop drama. He said, here's how much money I can make off an interracial cop drama. So I'll give you 75% of that number to make the movie. And if you can make the movie for that, we're in business. And it's that kind of, you know, there's nothing wrong with having that kind of like, this is what the, this is what this book will support. This is what this project will support. So this is the money we have to make that project. And the, you don't spend $300 million on that movie. You spend $10 million on that movie and then it makes 50 and you did great. You know, right? it, it, it's, it's funny that there are buzzwords. If you put Lovecraft in the title, if you put yep. Cthulhu in the title, um, instant 15 grand. You know what I'm saying? Uh, um, the booby books do a lot better. Um, if, if, if you take lady and then any like badass metal word and put it at the end, lady death, lady killer, lady, I don't know, 
marmalade, <laughs> you know, lady, lady axe wielder, lady, you know what I'm saying? And and it's uh, and it's it's a woman kicking ass with giant boobs. Uh, I I don't know why badass female uh, uh, superheroes don't wear clothes, but 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 on Kickstarter they don't. Um, but 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 it's funny. I mean, there there are these things like if you want to go on and make a million dollars on uh, on Kickstarter, there's a there's a definite formula to it. Yeah. Well, when we when we did drawing blood, and we decided that the we would do the in universe TMNT style <laughs> comic, and it would be cats instead of turtles. Reportedly, it was reported back to me from people at Kickstarter that when the president of Kickstarter saw that it was going to be cats, they're like, "Oh, this thing's gonna this thing's gonna take off because it's cats." It's like everything with cats funds. If you have cats. <laughs> Yeah, if you have cats, you're gonna fund. Like, yeah. there's no, there's no oh, question. Cool cat. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 No, it's so. Yeah. And is uh, is that that's the book that ended up in the Smithsonian, right? Lavos de Mayo. Yeah. Yes, it did. It is in the Smithsonian. Yeah. Tell us, tell us that story, because I, uh, I right next, right yeah, next last, to Fonzie's jacket. Yeah, last year, uh, my friend M.D. Marie, uh, David and I just saw each other at Collector's sure. Paradise. Uh, he the... seems great. I had not met her before. Yes. Um, she was at the um, she was at the Smithsonian, and uh, she saw in the gift, uh, the Smithsonian's gift shop. Oh, nice. Yeah, and, um, and I, I looked at I, I zoomed in, and there was, like, a lot of, like... Um, like scholastic style, like sure. books and picture books and stuff. And it was one of the only, I think the Frederick Douglass graphic novel. Oh, that David uh, Dave Walker, Walker's. Yeah, yeah. That he wrote. The um, that's a great, that's a great book. Yeah. I think those were the two like um, books that were to, sitting next to each other. But yeah, it was one of those, like, fr I, I was so honored to hear about that, but it was really frustrating because I've been doing trying to do this for a long time and and I never get approached by publishers or editors to work in comics. I'm like I'm gonna have to leave early for this because I have to talk to my you know, my attorney about, you know, clearing up some stuff because there might be some film and television. And I get so many inquiries about film and TV, but nothing in comics. And it was just like I don't know a lot of people outside of David Walker that have a book at the Smithsonian. And it's also actually in an exhibit at, in, in Paris, in a, an indigenous museum exhibit. Nice. Like next door to the Eiffel Tower. And it's like, why is it that everyone can see a value in, in me outside, like, but the comic book industry? So like at that point when I heard about it, it was just like really fueling my anger for the industry because I, I love the medium. I love. I totally get that. You know what I mean? Like, I love. I totally this, get that. I love this medium so much, but it's like the business. But yeah, you know, out, out, outside of dynamite, nobody in comics gives a shit about me. Right. Is, you know how it which is. Which is funny to me. I and I'm out there for dynamite. I'm selling a pretty good amount of books for them, and nobody cares. Doesn't doesn't mean anything. What that the Smithsonian thing reminds me of. I went to Bard College. Very very you know, pretentious, arty college in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. They have a bookstore and there's a section called Books by Bardians. And because of who Bardians are, everything on that shelf is like deep sociological treatises and, <laughs> you know, literary history. And I love that among, all, you know, Utney Reader, 
all that kind of stuff. And then Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, Volume 1. <laughs> Love it. Someone sent me a picture of it, and it's just like 20 of the most, and I'm sure they're terrific books, but 20 of the most like high-toned, high-class thing in the world. <laughs> like the sore thumb, the sore thumb of all sore thumbs sticking out uh, is an Elvira. I mean, Mistress I mean of the like, Dark you know, Club. it was hard not to think of you when the Elvira news came out this last week. Sure. And well, I have to say, I had forgotten this. I just did the lettering approvals for number three. And there's a panel in issue three where Elvira and Vincent Price, and Vincent was sort of famously pansexual. I mean, not famously at the time that he was alive, but it's kind of been acknowledged by his daughter after his death. That he had he had male lovers over the years and was married to a couple of women and all that. I had totally forgotten, and I wrote this over a year ago. Elvira says to Vincent Price after they've arrived in Cairo, okay, so we're here, we're queer, what do we do next? <laughs> and I was looking at that panel going, that is going to make me look like I had some inside knowledge that I absolutely did not have. Wow. That it's coming out, it's coming out in two weeks. I literally have a comic where Elvira calls herself queer and I was just going off of the fact, look, she's been the grand marshal of pride parades for 30 years. If you couldn't pick up some kind, surely, you know, the idea that she was a Kinsey zero seems <laughs> ill-considered. Yes. Yeah. For want I of a better word, that. her best friend is Pee Wee Herman. You know, like, oh, wow. there are lines for one to read between going back 30, 40 years. And even like, you know, and Vincent Price. It's like some of her, she actually told me, we had dinner recently, and she said, I'm surprised to meet your wife. Everyone who's ever been able to write Elvira has been a gay man. I, are, you, are you sure you're straight? I'm like, oh, yeah, boring, <laughs> boring Kinsey Zero. Sorry. Uh, I said, but I'm married to a burlesque dancer. And she's like, oh, that totally explains it then. So you understand. <laughs> You understand me and my world and all that. But, but yeah, that was, I was very proud of her and uh, very happy that she finally was able to talk about it and uh, happy for her and her girlfriend and all of that. I actually just sent her, there's an upcoming project and I just sent her an email today asking to use her girlfriend in it. And she'll probably say no, but I had to ask, had, had to ask. But uh, so you're at Oni now, but as we, I know we only have a few minutes left. You've moved on to Oni now. What are you doing there? Um, I was lucky. Alex Segura, he reached out to me, asked me if I was interested. Um, at Top Cow, I had, a, I, I wore a, did a lot of different hats. So I was looking to kind of wear one or two hats. So <laughs> I'm the new um, marketing manager. Uh, so I, I deal with a lot of comics and bookshops and um, just try to help them figure out ways to sell more books. And um, Alex is fairly new over there himself, right? Yeah, he's been there seven months. Uh, okay, because he was he. I I remember him being at Archie for a very long yeah. time. We, we we had him on the show. Uh, yeah, yeah, not too long ago, he was. On oh, Archie. cool. Yeah, he was at Archie then. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, no, he he is an Archie guy, and we're both two people that were like really integral in our previous. Um, spaces yeah you know, I, I i had no intention on leaving top cow 
Uh, I love Top Cow. Mark Silvestri is one of the best bosses I've ever had. Al, Elena Salcedo, Matt Hawkins, my coworker Vince, all great people, and, and I miss working with them. Um, but it, I felt like this was a good opportunity to kind of just like really hone my focus on the direct market because, um, you know, I just did the Diamond Retailer Summit, 18% uh, up from 2019 within Diamond bookstores, uh, comic shops, you know, are, are, I think are, are on the upswing again. And as much as we all like to say that the sky is falling, um, it's a great time to like talk to these people who are seeing more people in their books, in their shops than than like we've ever seen before. Cool. Yeah, I always, I mean, I'm, I evangelize to my fellow comics professionals for paying attention to retailers and paying attention to the retail space. You do a and, great job. I well, think, thank yeah, you. I'll and, go to comic shops and you're signing books and shaking <laughs> babies and kissing. Yeah. Hands. Shaking hang, babies and kissing hands. That's, that's the job. But I, I absolutely believe, and I, you know, I think it, it benefits you every time I travel. I find the closest comic book store and I step in and I see if they got it. And look, if they don't have anything of mine, I quietly leave. I don't, you know, I don't say, hey, what the hell, man? What's going on? I do um, the opposite. I say, hey, I wrote this book. You should have it on your shot, on your thing. Yeah, they always end up ordering a copy. Yeah, it depends. You know? it, but like, you know, sometimes they have, you know, one or two things and then I'll talk about what I got going on and, right. and all that. But, uh, but sometimes it's just like... I'm sure you know this, especially as a as a former Top Cow guy and as an Oni guy. You there are shops you walk into and you go, "Oh, Batman, Spider Man, or go fuck yourself" is what we've got. And then you're like, if if it, if it ain't Marvel, DC, these these cats have yeah. zero. Like yeah. maybe they have some Walking Dead collections because it's on the television, but uh, but you know those shops I try to steer uh, clear from. But anyone who's got an open mind to the indie world, you know, I I, I am I am happy to be their friend and ambassador. But uh, we always wrap up by saying, where can people find you? Your link tree, which links now to at least three dead websites uh, that might come back <laughs> oh. by the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. But where yeah, can you know, my link tree you? has? Yeah, if you could go to like. Um, uh, Harry Brahas link tree. I have all of the most, uh, like pretty much all of the ways to pre-order Helm Grey Castle. I have a <laughs> signing at um, Collector's Paradise uh, Wanaka on the 13th. I have a Zoom with the NoHo uh, Zoom session with NoHo Library on the 14th. I have a signing and we're going to play one of the games um, in the comics at uh, Golden Apple on the 15th. Oh, that sounds like drunk. Yeah, cool. so please come by if you want to play some D and D. On the on the 16th, I'm driving down to Nowhere Games and Comics out by San Diego, and then I'll be. I don't know when you're airing this, but I'll be at New York Comic Con this week. This and, is uh, this is coming out Wednesday. So yeah, I'll be on a plane to New York Comic Con. I'll be at uh, San Diego Comic Con uh, Special Edition. Going to Thought Bubble. I'll be at LA Comic Con. I'll be at. Um, uh, Comic Con Revolution Ontario, California. Got to make sure. I may be at, I may be at three of those. The ones that I can reach in my automobile. There you go. Uh, I'm going to be at. Uh, I've got. I've gotten surly about New York Comic Con. If they don't want to invite me as a guest, I'm just not. It's too goddamn expensive a, a con for me to pay eighty five dollars for a pro badge. Right. That is offensive. That I, is. That's the show lucked out for me. I. I'm. I'm cat sitting, so I got a free place to stay. <laughs> nice. I'm using um, points that are like a flight 
credit that I had, sure. got canceled last year. Sure. Um, it just like it just made sense because Helm Grey Castle is coming out on the sure. 13th. Yeah, but... I gotta I gotta use my Alaska Air, uh, <laughs> my Alaska Air points from uh, my canceled Emerald City trip in 2019 by the yeah. end of the year. So I will I will be going somewhere, but uh, dynamite. Dynamite can't get you a badge, David. That's, Dynamite that's does not do a booth there anymore. Wow, it's too expensive. Okay. The last time I, the no. 2018 or 2017, I went to, and Dynamite had a booth, and that was the last time I, the last time I had a meeting with Joe Ryband at uh, New York Comic Con. We were standing in an aisle blocking people. <laughs> like, yeah. That was that was, or I should say, Joe was blocking people. He is a very large, tall man. I am not. But uh, anyway, thank you so much, Henry. Hey, thank you, uh, thank Ryland. You. Where can the where can the people find you? I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That's R Y L E N D G R A N T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it, and so now I have to spell it for you. Um, but uh, yeah, my books: um, the uh, uh, Ringo Award-winning Aberrant. The four-time Ringo-nominated Banjacks are available in fine comic shops everywhere and via Amazon and Comixology and all of that good noise. Um, I talked about The Jump and uh, The Peacekeepers earlier, my Kickstarter uh, 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 bits of business. Um, if you go to my Backerkit site, if you go to thejump2.backerkit.com, it's the jump one word and the number two, thejump2.backerkit.com, you can find those there, as well as signed copies of Aberrant and Banjax and Rare Con variants and all that good stuff. And um, as I teased earlier, issues one and two of Suicide Jockeys are in comic shops right now via SourcePoint Press. Um, so yeah, go check that out. Um, it has been, uh, I am I am still like stunned by how well the reviews, uh, how well it's been reviewed. Um, nice. I don't think we I don't think we've had a bad review yet. So so more power to you guys. I'm sure it's coming. Uh, but but yeah, uh, go get it. It's a lot of fun. Most fun I had uh, making a comic thus far. So nice. And you can find me at uh, davidavalonefreelance.com, and that links to all of the other things. That just makes it nice and easy. And right. like like Henry, my my Twitter has a link tree on it. And yes, half those links are dead because. Uh, Zuckerberg is freaking out over what was on 60 Minutes on Sunday. Uh, we can talk about that next time. But thank you so much for joining us, Henry. I, I was thrilled to have you on the show. And thank maybe you. we'll bring you back with MD Marie uh, sometime. I'd love to have her You should on. have MD. She's very funny. Yeah. And her mom's great. great so. yeah. Thanks, guys. Cool. Right. Thanks, man. Thank you, Henry. And Thanks for listening. See, see you on the next episode, kids. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on The Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.